0: Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here
0: with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: i strongly believe that an isolated entrepreneur cannot be successful you have to stay connected Um, that's what's going to help you kind of get through some of your hurdles and problems there's always someone in your network that can help you i believe that
2: You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikaela Matthews Okome. So let's get started. This episode of Side Hustle Pro is brought to you by the Color Noir app. I remember being 13 and visiting one of my favorite cousins in Brooklyn. I walked into our apartment and she was posted up on the couch with a coloring book. Mind you, she had to be like 23 years old at the time. And I remember asking her, uh, is this your coloring book? You color? Isn't that for kids? Low key, it was kind of shady of me, but I was really confused. But she told me, yes, I'm coloring and it's relaxing. That was the first time I'd ever heard that. So then I tried coloring myself. And ever since then, I have found that coloring books are one of the best ways to just zone out and relax. Easy, simple self-care. So I was very excited when Moyo decided to develop his very own coloring book in an app, and it's called Color Noir. And he actually asked me to work on it with him. I have to find a way back on the show. I mean, isn't he always finding his way back on the show? So, again, the app is called Color Noir. It's out now. That's Color, N-O-I-R. You have never seen a coloring book app like this. It celebrates Black Girl magic. What else? Of course, in all of its glory, you're going to love it. It was so much fun selecting the images and curating the app features together. Right, babe? That's a fact. It was a lot of fun. And it's a proud Okome production. So to get it, open up your iOS app store app, search for Color Noir, and enjoy. Again, that's Color, N-O-I-R. And make sure you hit subscribe in the app so you can get all of the amazing images and bonuses dropping each and every month. Enjoy. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome. Welcome back to the show. Today in the guest chair, we have Mrs. Taffy Ayodelli. The co-founder of Tondo's, a Lagos and New York-based fashion company. Tondo's shoes are foldable ballerina flats, giving women a compact and comfortable shoe option that they can easily take with them on the go. And did I mention they are so stylish? Tondo's is the brainchild of Taffy and her husband, JG. They met while they were pursuing their MBAs at the NYU Stern School of Business. Their love for each other... Love for Africa and Love for Art inspired the couple to create this innovative footwear line that facilitates a modern woman's busy lifestyle while supporting African artists. So Tondos provides a platform for creative talent on the African continent by crowdsourcing designs from African men and women who would otherwise have limited opportunities to design for a global audience. How amazing is that? That said, it was a lot of work, continues to be a lot of work, to bring the brand to life. As Taffy shares in this episode, it wasn't easy picking up and moving to a continent that she never lived on, plus learn to navigate business in a completely different culture and navigate the highs and lows of that. But Taffy and JG were determined and they have created a remarkable product and are making their footprint across the globe, pun intended. We actually tried to record this episode one year ago. Time really flies. We attempted this one year ago, but the generators and Wi-Fi in Nigeria and Lagos would not let us be great. So I'm so glad we were finally able to reconnect and get this interview out to you guys. Let's get right into it. So welcome to the guest chair, Taffy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, it's really exciting. Whenever I get to talk to people who are working on businesses outside of the country, across the globe, it is so inspirational for me. And I think a lot of us have aspirations to have that impact, that footprint one day. So, you know, kudos to you on all you're doing. And I can't wait to dive into it. Now, let's take a step back for a second. So you and your husband founded this company. Where did you meet?
1: So we met at NYU Stern School of Business back in 2011.
2: Were you both kind of on the entrepreneurial track? What was it about that experience that caused you guys to connect?
1: So my husband was a year ahead of me. Um, So he was class of 2012, I was class of 2013. And I came into my program very entrepreneurship focused. Um, He was more focused on media, entertainment, technology, and finance. Um, But we had a common interest in doing business in Africa. So he was actually the uh, executive vice president of a club that we had called Stern in Africa, And usually for incoming um, students, there's like a, you know, get to know the different clubs and, you know, they pretty much pitch us on joining their club. So I was curious because I have an aunt who had lived on the continent for about eight years. She works for the UN. And so I was just really intrigued about business opportunities on the continent. And the presentation that he gave that day just really opened my eyes. Um, And he was just talking about a lot, you know, this growth in entrepreneurship, a lot of uh, young Africans and young diasporans kind of moving to the continent for business opportunities. So that's how we really connected um, and became friends. And then. Fast forward a little bit, he actually became my accounting tutor. Old <laughs> <laughs> business, I love it. So, so that's that's kind of how we, set, you know, ended up spending more, you know, more time together in close quarters. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things happen, right? Um, and we learned it's it's interesting. We learned about three years into our relationship that his parents met the exact same way that we met. They met at the same school um, at NYU. His mom was a year behind his dad. Get and out. His, yep, his dad was his mom's accounting tutor. What? So he literally <laughs> repeated history 36 years later. What? Uh, oh my yeah, gosh. It, it's really, it's one of those things like, wow, this was really meant to be. <laughs> that is so um, crazy. But yeah, it was... Um, We just had this this common interest, this common interest. Um, I had never been to the continent. He grew up on the continent. Um, But that's really what got our relationship going and this, this common interest.
2: And so you are, you're Guyanese and he's Nigerian? Yes. Oh, and what was your earliest memory of wanting to start a business? I find it interesting that you went into that business school experience with a lot of entrepreneurial thoughts simmering in your brain.
1: So, I would say my earliest thought was probably my freshman year in college. Um, I thought that I was going to be a doctor <laughs> um from you know a little girl. I was a little weird. I used to like cut open my my stuffed animals and like put little toys inside and sew it back up and then open it up again. It's a little strange. Okay, okay. <laughs>
2: But I was just always
1: like intrigued um, by medicine. And so I remember being pre-med undergrad. I went to NYU undergrad as well. Um, And but there was this side that kind of opened up because I decided to major in economics. And I was more interested in like starting a practice and the business of medicine and not necessarily like in love with the science. Um, and that I was tested by that when I got to chemistry class, I was like, I really don't love this, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but I was more intrigued by capital markets and, you know, global business. And those were the topics that really intrigued me. Um, but back then I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't have an idea, uh, you know, a specific idea for a business back then, but I was interested. Um, and it wasn't until, um, I worked, you know, in the finance industry, uh, after graduation, I worked in financial services, I worked in investment banking and my last job right before business school, I worked for New York state government and I was primarily focused on working with women and minority owned businesses. And that's where the light bulb kind of really went on for me. Um, because I got to know a lot of the kind of intricate details and some of the struggles that Entrepreneurs go through. Um, but these were all people who'd been in business for you know ten plus years, and they'd really created solid companies. They were employing other people. and they just had this freedom that most of us didn't have who were working for someone else
2: did you did did it kind of normalize entrepreneurship and starting a business for you, with having that experience with people and just seeing that, hey, they are no different than me, and they're doing this.
1: It absolutely did. <laughs> it did. It, it normalized it. Um, and it made it seem attainable. You know, it was like, okay, I could do this. Um, but at the same time, I think it also made me aware of what I was getting myself into. Now, you really don't know until you get into it for yourself. But I think learning from other people's business mistakes and getting an understanding of some of the hurdles that they had to overcome was like a reality check for me. I think a lot of people jump into entrepreneurship and they just see the success and they really don't have an understanding of, you know, the 10 years prior or the five years prior to that success.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So now you're at NYU and I read that you had this kind of pivotal moment in South Africa. What were you doing in South Africa and what was that experience with footwear?
1: So I was in South Africa, not for footwear at all. (laughs) I was there um, interning with a gourmet tea startup. So another, you know, black female entrepreneur from our business school, um, she had started this tea company and she, um, She needed someone to help her with uh, business development. And so she hired me for the summer. It was an unpaid internship. um, And I was in the process of trying to figure out well, how am I going to support myself for two months um, in a country that I've never been to? And so I was able to get some support from my dean um, because not a lot of students actually have a desire to go (laughs) across the world and learn about. Uh, luxury tea and and developing a business around that. So, um, I booked a one way flight because I couldn't quite afford the way you know the ticket back. Um, and I helped I helped build this this company. But how it kind of pivoted to footwear is I traveled with a pair of ten dollar uh, foldable flats that I bought from you know Dwayne Reed or CVS, one of those drugstores, uh, because living in New York. You know, you're used to going from your heels to your flats. It, you know, it was a product that was pretty popular for girls who would like go out at night and wanted to be in something comfortable, like backup flats. Because um, every pair of heels definitely has like an expiration date. Like yes. it, there's an alarm clock <laughs> on it. Like you got to get these off. Right. So um, that was having that product with me pretty much everywhere I went. People kept asking me about the product. So, you know, I, I, made a ton of friends while I was there. And it was just, it continually was like a point of conversation, these shoes. And I'm like, what's the big deal? I'm sure they have these types of flats here in South Africa. Um, and the, you know, the part of South Africa I was in was very affluent. They had, you know, very sophisticated retail. So I'm, I actually went looking for these foldable flats because I was going to buy it as a a gag gift for my boss that summer. Her birthday was coming up and I couldn't find them anywhere. And I kind of just brushed it off. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, I'd gone out one night with one of my, a group of my girlfriends and it, you know, we were leaving the venue and I went to put my flats on and she offered me a hundred dollars for my flats. What? But this is the crazy part. Mind you, remember, I wasn't getting paid, so I actually needed that $100. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was in so much pain that I'm like, I can't sell these. Like, I need them right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, it was just like one of those aha moments. Like, wait, this people really need a product like this. And I guess that's why it's doing so well in the U.S., but no one has brought it here to South Africa. So... I did some further research, um, after my internship and, you know, we, my, being that JG's from, uh, Nigeria, it, it wasn't a product category available in Nigeria either. Um, and so that's what got me working on it. it within my entire second year of business school. I worked on developing the business plan around bringing foldable flats to Africa
2: And was JG as into this idea or was he like, oh, that's interesting? You know, was he as enthused about it? He was. He was like, oh, wait, like because he he understood the problem
1: because he saw me struggle with heels. (laughs) He was like, this makes sense, you know, and I guess he thought that all women had this foldable shoe, you know. Absolutely. And when I explained to him, it just wasn't a product category that was available. He got it. And. What he was excited about was figuring out a way to make it really unique to that market um, and making it niche and It was his idea to use African print on the sh- on the flats instead of the basic you know black and brown and like you know silver and gold those are kind of the colors that yes. you use in the u s for like weddings and just basic, you know, commuting to work colors. Okay, um, JG,
2: mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. with the fashion he, sense. Um, okay. He, oh,
1: he's, he's more fashionable than I am. So, <laughs> um, it, it's, it's actually a very, we make a great team when it comes to this business.
2: So it's so good. It worked. Yeah. Now, so you, you say you get back to NYU, in your second year of business school, you worked on it all second year. What does that mean? What what did you do next? Did you try to manufacture them right away? What were you working on?
1: So the first thing that we were trying to come up with is how do we manufacture shoes? None of us had a background um, in footwear and we didn't know where to really start. And so We tried, you know, thank God for (laughs) Alibaba.com. You know, you you can find pretty much anything on Alibaba. So we went on there and when you put in foldable flats, there were a number of companies that came up. Um, But you learned that the quality wasn't that great. And we had a very specific idea around making sure that the shoe was a lot more durable because we were considering we're we're trying to develop a product for the African market. So we reached out to our network and one of JG's friends was in the creative space. He wasn't in fashion but he was an architect and knew a number of people in fashion and we were able to find our first footwear designer who had a background with companies like Michael Kors and J Crew and specifically in footwear. So we really, we were blessed with that connection because he helped us to develop our initial prototype. And that took us about a year. That full year that I was in, you know, that last year in business school was really just trying to come up with our like minimum, minimum viable product. Like yes. what can this look like? Um, and it took time and it was, it was difficult because- we learned that a lot of the manufacturers in China have very, very high MOQs, minimum order quantities. And we didn't want to just start with one color, you know. We wanted to be able to start with a variety of colors. Um, so it ultimately took us about two years to actually have a completed prototype
2: that we could bring to the market. And when you say, so when you found this designer, once he sketched it up, how did you then work to manufacture it? Did he also know of manufacturing companies, like who exactly to reach out to in China to get it developed? Yes. So he
1: had a couple of uh, factory connections from his previous jobs. Um, In addition to the couple of manufacturers that we found on alibaba.com. Now, we ended up going with one of the manufacturers that he connected us to, but we hit a wall when it came time to place an order. We couldn't place our order would not have been big enough. We just weren't that well funded at the time.
2: And because were you investing just strictly savings and 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 loan money at this point? <laughs>
1: yeah, at this point it was savings, like cashing out investment accounts and, you know, our parents at this point. So yes. it, we just couldn't meet the minimum order. And honestly, that designer got frustrated. He quit on us.
2: He was Get just out. like,
1: yeah, he quit. He quit on us. And um, I'll tell you this much. That was very frustrating. It was extremely frustrating because we didn't have a footwear background. We didn't have a fashion background. And it seemed like we weren't going to break through this wall of getting this product manufactured. So I graduated, I moved to Nigeria um, with JG. And um, at this point, I was working on the business full time. JG was working full time um, with Viacom. So he was pursuing his career in media, entertainment, and technology as he planned, but he was helping me part time. And I found myself. You know, I had my moments where I did kind of want to give up, but mm-hmm. I said, you know what, Taffy, every day you're going to get out of the house and you're just going to talk to other entrepreneurs. So there was this ice cream par- uh, parlor in Lagos that a lot of other entrepreneurs went to. It was almost like our local Starbucks. <laughs> so you're there all day with like, you know, you order that one or two cups of tea or whatever it was, and you're sitting there on your laptop. They had free Wi Fi you know, as long as you bought something and literally it wasn't until two years in to, to this business that there was another entrepreneur who I'd become friends with from this coffee, from this ice cream parlor. And I was just like venting to her. Like we really can't, like we're not having any luck finding a manufacturer. And she said, Hey, I actually know a girl who makes handbags. Um, but I think she might know someone in footwear And that is what finally led us to the manufacturer that we've used for the past three years.
2: Wow. So let's talk about this move that you just glossed over, Taffy, now.
1: (laughs) Now, where did you grow up? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in New York and I grew up in New Jersey. So I kind of did half of my life in, in each state. Um, so yeah, I've
2: never lived outside of the country. I've never lived outside of the East coast. (laughs) So what was the process of deciding we are going to bet on this business and start it and we're going to move to Lagos and you're going to continue working on it. I'll work full time. You do this and and try to get it off the ground. What was that process like? Were you guys um, engaged yet? Just serious? How did you know that this was the move to make?
1: So, at the time, we were serious about our relationship, and um, it was one of those things where we had spent so much time developing the business plan, and we knew we had a really great product. Uh, we actually had an advisor who was uh, chair of the marketing department at our business school, and he was you know fully supporting us doing this and I said, you know, initially we wanted to start this business in South Africa because that's where the idea came about. But uh, JG's job offer from Viacom uh, came in the form of a position in Nigeria, in Lagos, not in, originally he actually wanted the position in South Africa, but the economy in South Africa was slowing down. Nigeria was picking up. So we said, okay, well, we can make this work because- Nigeria's known for the you know Ankara fabrics and we can source our fabrics from there so this could this could work this could make sense plus we have your parents and family there to kind of support us it'll be like a softer landing uh for both of us so it was it was tough. My family looked at me like I was crazy. Um, <laughs> I mean, thank you for
2: for you know being for, transparent
1: about that because
2: yeah. yeah, I was just wondering how this all went down. They
1: they were yeah they were not happy. I'll be honest with you, they were <laughs> not happy about this move. Um, but I've always been a risk taker, and I knew we loved each other. I knew that we really believed in this business. And so we just went for it. Um, and I'm glad we did. I'm absolutely glad that that we did make that move. And that time in Nigeria really, sh- I feel like it sharpened me. Um, there are lots of challenges to doing business in Nigeria. At one point, we thought that we could even try and manufacture the shoes in Nigeria. But there, there are a host of of issues. And that's why I always say hats off to entrepreneurs who actually do make it out of Lagos. I feel like they can make it anywhere because,
2: (laughs) because of the hurdles. I mean, it's very, very difficult. What are some of those hurdles? Is it, um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. So
1: I would say one of the biggest hurdles for Nigerian entrepreneurs and at this time, you know, so I'm talking like 2013, 2014. I mean, now today you're seeing a number of like tech startups coming out of Nigeria that are like fully funded, you know, getting millions of dollars. But at that time, people were still skeptical. Um, and you have people who you have a a country, um, where the dominant industry is oil and gas. And so if you're not doing something in that oil and gas space, the people who have the capital aren't necessarily willing to invest. Right? So you end up with people giving, wanting to give you investing uh, investment terms that are a little predatory. Um, so we were blessed because we have networks here in the U.S. So we were able to raise money outside of Nigeria. Um, but a lot of entrepreneurs in Nigeria struggle with that. And so there's a lot of bootstrapping. Um, and slowly but surely over the years, we're starting to see more VC investors looking at Nigeria, looking at Lagos specifically. And, uh, you know, I know a number of entrepreneurs who've done really well, but I also know probably 10 times more who have failed because, of, because it's really, really hard to raise money. Um, the other big roadblock I would say is the inconsistency with power. Um, you have, um, most of the time, you're running on generators, um, and that can be very expensive. So if you have an office, think about having a significant amount of your budget, just fueling having the lights on and having the Internet on. And we know this firsthand when we we tried to do this
2: interview a the year ago. The first time, right? <laughs> I can't believe the that. Wi-Fi was on. The Wi-Fi. I was really trying to make it work. We were really trying to push through. But yeah, that Wi-Fi was not our friend.
1: That's every day. That's an everyday struggle in Lagos. Um, and, and other parts of the continent where entrepreneurs are just trying to like make their businesses work. So it can be, it can break you if you're not tough, if you're not just tenacious and willing to find other routes, other options. I know entrepreneurs who go over to Ghana, like if they have a tech business, just to be able to have 24 hour power so that they can code.
2: Get it. Oh my goodness. Get out. That's how
1: intense it is. But
2: yeah. <laughs> so how did you financially prepare for this move? Not only are you moving to another country and a whole other continent, but also still working on starting your company?
1: So preparing for that move financially was at that point, I was already broke. Honestly, <laughs> I, um, I was a year out of um well, I was actually fresh out of school at this point. And so I graduated in May of 2013 and I moved in August of 2013. And I would say about two weeks after I graduated, that's when I cashed out my uh, retirement account. And that money went into all of our trying to get just the, the designs worked on and coming up with this prototype um, hiring a lawyer so that we could get everything structured. So that in itself was, that's why one of us had to work. That's why it was important that one of us had a job. And, um, I don't think I would have made that move if we were both going and working on this full time. Yeah.
2: And he graduated before you, you said, right. So had yeah. you been out there already for a year kind of set up? No, no, no. Oh. He
1: actually, it took him, it actually, that year, that I was finishing up school. He was going through his job search. So the media entertainment space, their recruiting cycles are off. Um, And for him, it was between a job in San Francisco um, and a job in on the continent. And he did get the offer in California, but his heart was really set on being back on the continent. So he waited. He waited. Yeah, there, there was a lot of back and forth with getting that position approved um in Nigeria. So yeah, so we were both you know broke
2: broke together but broke together.
1: Broke together in love and um yeah, we made that move. He moved he moved a, a few months before me to kind of get settled and then when I moved what I decided, I mean, this, your podcast it is called Side Hustle Pro. Um, I did decide to have a little side hustle while I was there. So I consulted for uh, another startup that was in the PR space so that I could get a better understanding of the fashion scene in, in Nigeria and the consumer in Nigeria. So okay. it was actually helpful for me to do that. Um, so I did some consulting on the side and that brought in some money while he was also bringing in the, the majority of the money with oh, his okay. icon.
2: Now, you mentioned that you hired a lawyer. That was one of your first steps, it looks like. Um, what what were the, the other steps you took to make Tondo's a formal business?
1: So the main things for us were getting the company registered, opening up a bank account, and really trying to have good contracts with our, I mean, the first employee that we had really was our designer. Um, and for us, we knew that we were designing something unique and we wanted to make sure that we protected that design. So it was important for us to have, um, sound legal contracts with anyone working with us. We also had, someone working with us who was a classmate of mine from business school who had a marketing background. So everyone had a contract that they signed um, and they agreed that whatever was designed and created for Tondo stays with Tondos. I think a lot of what people do in the beginnings of their business is they'll start something, they'll get other people involved, and that's why you end up hearing stories of people splitting and one person running and, and starting a competing business. Mm. So, I think that having an MBA and having the understanding of intellectual property, we both, my husband and I both took um, IP law classes in business school. Um, That's something that we knew was important to protect what we were building.
2: And speaking of that protection, I also know people so when you were starting out did you were you able to pay these people were you or were you giving away any equity because I've seen people um who started very early on it end up not working out as a partnership, and then it's all this weirdness where one person doesn't want to let go of their equity and they're trying to buy them out and how did you navigate that when you didn't have money
1: That's a very good question, so in the beginning. The, the, our first two uh, employees were not getting paid. Um, and there was there were conversations in the beginning of equity, but we had not put that um, in writing yet. Our designer didn't want equity. He just wanted to be paid. So we were paying him um, like a retainer every month to help us with the project. So that worked out. We didn't have any issues uh, with that. Um it wasn't until we really started in Nigeria and we started building our initial team that there were conversations around equity. So we do have two employees in Nigeria who are, they are getting paid, but they also, um, they, they also do have equity, but if they, if they have to earn the equity, it's a vested, it's a vested schedule.
2: Got it. Yeah. And with your design and how important it it was for you to make your product unique, did you start focusing on the actual product makeup itself? So for example, you know, how your product was going to fold, what the cushioning would be, or were you more focused on the design and the African prints?
1: I would say we were equally focused on both because for me, I I was more concerned about the comfort and we coupled that with our designer who wanted to make sure that it was aesthetically pleasing. So I think we were able to accomplish both at the same time. But for me, I know how awful it is to buy a pair of flats that look great, but they're killing your feet. Um, So we spent a lot of time making sure that the cushioning was correct. We spent a lot of time making sure that the shoes wouldn't blister your heel. Um, I'm not going to name the brand a flat that costs like $300. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all know it. <laughs> that everyone had. And, you know, I had blisters from that shoe. You know, it looked cute, but it just, it was not, it wasn't good for my feet. And so we did, we spent a lot of time going back and forth. I think that took us about six months just to get the right amount of cushion um, and the right width for our toe box so that your toes didn't feel cramped.
2: Interesting. And did you have to do particular study there, for example, is a black person's foot box or whatever you just said <laughs> typically the same as a white person's or, you know, like how, what did you study to get the right width?
1: So we st- so what we did, we actually used my feet <laughs> as like the <laughs> the example, which is so funny. Um I have I don't have extra wide feet, but I have an issue um with my baby toe and the toe next to it on both of my feet. Um I have pretty much like a missing joint in between those toes. So even if I wear sneakers or shoes that are seemingly comfortable, after about an hour, I have a lot of, I experience a lot of foot pain. So this is something that I've been dealing with since I was a teenager. So what I did is I made sure that I could wear our shoes for long periods of time. And if I wasn't experiencing pain, I figured that the the average consumer wouldn't experience pain. And that actually worked. It actually worked. So with our manufacturer, we came up with this equation. We said, well, if we make our toe, the toe box is, is what it's called technically. If we make the toe box, the area where your toes are about 50% wider, then we'll come up with a shoe that won't give your customer foot pain. But, but at the same time, we put elastic on the side so that it won't flop off of your feet.
2: Right, and be too wide.
1: And be too wide. So our first collection all of the shoes were wide width so if you had a reg- if you had a regular width, width foot or a wide foot your f- your feet could fit into our shoes comfortably the only community that we were discriminating against were the narrow foot girls <laughs> <laughs> so i said uh-oh okay um, so by the time we got to our third collection we were able to add A standard medium width and our standard medium width fits narrow and medium. Got it. Yeah.
2: Hey guys, it's Nakela here with a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, hey, y'all. Second quarter of 2019 has officially begun. So tell me, what skill have you been meaning to work on that you haven't gotten to yet? Now is the time. And there's no better place than Skillshare to start learning and growing today. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators just like us. It has over 25,000 classes in subjects like photography, entrepreneurship, graphic design, writing, marketing, and even podcasting, you name it. I even created a course and you can take it my how to start your own podcast course. It's on Skillshare so you can learn how to record, how to edit, how to publish your show and get started today as a podcaster. Huge thanks to Skillshare for supporting SideHustle Pro with a special offer just for you. You can get two months of unlimited access to Skillshare for free. So sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro. Start working on your dreams today. That's Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro to start your two months free right now. One last time, that's Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro. Have you guys seen the clip of Magic Johnson quitting his job as president of the Lakers via press conference rather than telling his boss straight up? Y'all, please don't be like Magic. Don't let the crazy at work cause you to make a hasty decision and leave your job before you're ready. Instead, open up your podcast app and subscribe to the Trail NBA show. You can even search for it right now while you're listening to me. If you're looking for a show that's going to help you thrive and navigate corporate America while you're side hustling and come out on top, this is the show for you. Host Felicia is the trillest MBA you will ever meet. And she is all about telling the truth and keeping it real about surviving and thriving. That's the most important part, thriving in corporate America. I want y'all to go to work and be happy and find joy and find a way to do what you love. So check out episodes like Stop Skipping the Work Happy Hour. Okay, those are important. And take comfort in the fact that you're not alone in this journey. It can be tricky, but let's talk about it. Felicia gives real and actionable tips to navigate those tough combos, those situations, and people at work. Just search for The Trill MBA Show in your podcast app and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Why why was it so important to you and JG to have not only African design, but African produced products? Because I know... That wasn't easy, right? Having to relocate, live in Lagos. What made it so important to you?
1: So you, you stated it right. It was very, it was not easy. It wasn't easy to make that move from designing the shoes in Nigeria, which we, you know, we did from the beginning to actually figuring out how to manufacture on the continent. So if it took us two years to find a manufacturer in Asia, imagine how how much time it took us to find one on the continent. Um, We recently were able to find a manufacturer in Ethiopia. But what kind of sparked that desire in us was we wanted to make sure that we were able to benefit the continent as much as possible. Um, Not just extract the design ideas, because part of our business model is that we actually crowdsource our designs from local artists. Um, Initially, when we started off, we were just buying the fabric from the local market. But we decided that we could have even more of an impact if we open up our design process, make it so that the community gets involved in what we produce. And we, then we also allow our customers and our followers to vote. So everyone's really engaged in the process. It's not just about what JG and I think or our design team thinks, but we're getting buy-in and feedback from the artist community and our consumers. How do you facilitate
2: that with the artists crowdsourcing the designs?
1: So we use social media. Um, we started off using Facebook. Uh, we did our first design competition Back in, I believe that was 2016, 2017. Um, And we just put it out on Facebook. We worked with a local uh, nonprofit in Lagos that worked with young African entrepreneurs. And we were able to get submissions that way because we also give a cash prize for the winning design. So that's an incentive, Uh, as well as we pay royalties to the to the winning artist. So for every pair of shoes that we sell, the artist gets a portion of our proceeds. Love that. Yeah. So that's that for us that was important because we wanted to to figure out a way to support the local artist community. And that became, it wasn't something that we thought about when we were in the US. It was something about living in Nigeria. You know, JG hadn't lived in Nigeria for, you know, over 13 or 15 years. So he wasn't as plugged into what was going on in the creative space. And we had met so many artists along the way who were just struggling or, you know, he had friends that he knew who were always creative, but their parents would just force them into traditional careers, you know, law and medicine or, you know, just banking and um, we knew that there was a lot of talent, but people weren't willing to risk being able to support themselves uh, versus what we see here in the U.S. There's so many, you know, quote unquote, starving artists um, who who they're able to dream, they're able to live out um, their passion, um, not so much there. And the artist community tends to be taken advantage of and it just becomes this kind of craft um industry, as opposed to really being taken seriously, and so we thought that this would be a great way to show artists that there is a way for them to monetize off of their their gift because it really is a gift and a talent that they have and our the first winner of our design competition she actually she said she told us she's always been extremely creative, um but it just wasn't something that was you know, developed in her, it wasn't something that her parents um, nurtured in her. And she works in a call center at night at for a bank. Um, and she makes, you know, less than $200 a month. And she has made, you know, over five times that just from one design that took her about 10 hours.
2: I love that. It's, it's
1: really inspiring to see artists who can, create something and monetize it. And then they also know that it's giving back because the design competition itself was themed, um, to support, uh, women and children who've been displaced by flooding in, in different parts of Nigeria, Lagos and Benway state. Uh, and so we've been able to help over 600 families who are displaced. So she gets a royalty, our artist, as well as the, this, um, Community that's been devastated by flooding, so that makes her feel good as well.
2: Yeah, and how how does that factor into pricing when you guys were sitting down and determining what to price these shoes at?
1: So we did factor that into our pricing because it's something that you know our investors do care about. (laughs) So it's um, we did have to factor that in, but that money for us isn't. um, It's not making our business less profitable. You know, we still have a profitable business. Um it's just important. It was important to us to give back. Um and that's just a part of who we are in general um, and how we live our lives. And so we look for investors who will also be on board with that. Um, Not all investors see that. And you know they think you're kind of just throwing your money away. And that's not the investor for us. Um, But we priced it in Uh, we made sure that we wanted to give back a significant enough amount that could really impact those communities um, while we can still maintain healthy margins for the business and for our investors.
2: And when was your official launch? What walk us through launch day when you guys officially put this on the market? So
1: our official launch was, (laughs) it's an interesting story. It was technically supposed to be um Christmas 2014 um New Year's 2015 <laughs> and there was a horrible strike that took place in Lagos at all of the ports so our goods our launch goods were sitting on a tarmac uh and they they sat there for almost 2 months oh my god <laughs> <laughs> So we had what? probably the worst launch day. We had we had scheduled to have um, this huge event at one of the local boutiques. Um, they were supposed to be carrying our shoes; they're one of our stockists. And we had drinks, and we had food, and there was a DJ, and we even had one of our brand ambassadors fly in from New York. <laughs> and we had no shoes. <laughs> that was that was
2: our launch day. Oh my our
1: launch gosh. Day
2: was <laughs> it was a complete flop. It was a complete Oh my gosh. I can What did you do? I mean, did
1: it you keep was, your cool? We had to keep our cool. So we we got creative because at that point we did have samples of each color. And so we just had one pair of shoes on you know of each on display. Um, I had on one of the older samples and I'm, I was just praying that the customers didn't look too close at my feet. Like yours looks a little different. Um, it was just, yeah, it was one of those things where we just had to improvise. We had a sign up sheet, you know, Hey, if you want to, you know, get on our wait list, the shoes will be here soon, (laughs) you know, and the shoes were not there soon. They were there, you know, like a month and a half, two months later. But when the shoes Finally arrived. Um, this was towards the end of February. We were able to sell out in less than six months. So we actually the the we had one print design, one Ankara print design, and that one sold out in less than three months. Um so we did quite well um when we actually did get the shoes.
0: When we did get (laughs) the shoes.
1: Yeah, we got them. We didn't get the shoes until like late
2: February. Okay. Yeah. And you said you had one Ankara uh, print design. Was that all you launched with or that was the only print that you launched with? Yeah, we launched with one print and four solids. Okay. Yeah. What was behind that um, decision?
1: So that was me. (laughs) That was me being a little conservative. Like, I don't know if, if we should launch with all prints. And um, JG was like, well, let's launch with at least one. And then we did one black, one brown. We did a rose gold and a red. And our designer, it was so funny. Our designer, this very experienced designer said, women love red shoes, but they don't buy red shoes.
2: Interesting.
1: And so we were like, "We we want to try this. And so the Ankara shoe sold out first and then the red shoe. Okay. We were literally left with more black and brown shoes
2: than anything. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, I was about to go poll my Delta friends. Like really? (laughs) Y'all aren't buying red shoes?
1: (laughs) So it was, it's just so interesting. These things that you hear in the industry about, well, this is what works. And this is what sells. And we learned that in Nigeria, that in in Lagos specifically, that market had a different appetite, hmm. and um, we also learned about our sizing. You know, we were sizing from size six to size twelve, and we sold out of sizes. I want to say sizes nine through eleven first.
2: Oh,
1: so we were learning that the sizes kind of scale up on the continent, right? Um. So we we did we learned. We there were a lot of lessons learned in that first collection. And so even when we went into our second collection where we decided to um do all prints, that collection sold out a lot faster than the first one. And so we're like, okay, people really like our brand for the unique prints because they can go get their black and brown flats somewhere else. So it, it was really you know, we
2: learned, we started to learn what our niche really was. And I'm really intrigued by this process of selling out. So I want to break that down a little bit. So when you launched launch day, when things were still in the port, had you already pre-sold the shoes on the website? If so, did you order after people placed their order or did you, you know, order a mass quantity? And then that was it. That was the amount of units that were on the website. So
1: interestingly enough, we had no website. Ah, We had no website when the product launched. We had a a landing page and we were doing most of our promotions on through our Facebook page. So we were essentially using our Facebook page as our website. And pre orders, that wasn't something that really worked in Nigeria. So we didn't really try that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We didn't try that. But what we did do was we figured out, we had a launch plan. So we knew, okay, which stores were we going to place some of the shoes in on consignment? And where, you know, what were the pop ups we were going to do? Whose offices were we going to go visit? And, you know, do kind of in-office pop-ups or pop-ins. And that's what worked. We did a lot of kind of just being out there on the ground, uh, guerrilla style, really. That's how, that's how we started the brand in Nigeria. And then when we did our kind of second launch in the U.S., which was in 2016, we, we planned out an eight-city trunk show tour. At this point, we did have a website. But we decided to go the pop-up route in different cities across the U.S. And again, we were able to sell about... We were able to sell 80% of our inventory within six months, which is for the footwear industry, most brands only sell about 40% within that same time frame. Okay. Um, And what we find that works for us is the fact that we do the crowdsourcing. So we we understand ahead of time, we're able to tell what customers like based on how they're voting, on which print, which colors, and we produce based on those numbers.
2: And do you have, what's the typical wait time? I mean, not now when you're in the middle of transitioning countries, but what was the time between that first batch and that second wave with all the prints and then moving forward? How do you just consistently have updates throughout the year or is there like a set timeline?
1: So as much as we've tried to have a set, a set timeline, that has not fully worked for us, unfortunately. Um, our manufacturing has been a little bit more sporadic than we would like. And that's something that with this move to Ethiopia, we're really trying to come up with more of a forecasted schedule. And a lot of that just had to do with, you know, struggling with fundraising, right? So we can we can put in orders as long as we're able to pay for these orders in bulk, pretty much. Um, because we're still a smaller brand, and because we're still not meeting a lot of these very high minimum order quantities, you have to be able to have the money up front to mass produce. So, ideally, we would like to put out at least three collections a year. Um, but we've only been able to put out about four collections, you know, over you know we've been in business now for about four years. So we've we've averaged about a collection per year. Um, And that's just based on this kind of cycle of fundraising and kind of reinvesting back into improving the product. Um, And finally, for this past year, it's been investing in moving our manufacturing um, to Ethiopia.
2: You, let's talk about this move to Ethiopia. Let's talk about it because you guys were so passionate about being in Lagos. I mean, being on the continent, but it seemed like Lagos had a special place in your heart. What uh, made you decide to move to Ethiopia? What considerations went into that decision?
1: So I'll say this. We haven't completely moved from Lagos because our design team and our office is still in Lagos. Okay. Okay. And so we're still getting our designs from Lagos. It was the manufacturing that was really posing a challenge to do that in Lagos. There were a number of reasons um, why we couldn't do it in Lagos. One, like I mentioned earlier, the power. And two, um, we had done some extensive research on local factories, and we just weren't finding management teams that we felt we could trust. Um, So in our search to manufacture our shoes somewhere on the continent, we were able to, we were very, very blessed. And we, we met, um, a gentleman who used to be the CEO of easy spirit. I don't know if you remember that brand Yes, Easy spirit, but he works for the USAID, which is, uh, an organization, a trade organization funded by the U S government that helps uh, U.S. companies find uh, manufacturing and kind of supply resources across the globe. Um, and so each country, you know, most countries have a USAID kind of, a, it's almost like an economic development office or business development office that supports U.S. businesses. So they, uh, the, in East Africa, um, Kenya, Ethiopia, Um, these countries have been building out their footwear manufacturing and apparel manufacturing industries. So their governments are invested. um, They've invested in the logistics. They've invested in ensuring that U.S. companies have an easy kind of transition into, into their markets. And so we were introduced to Ethiopia through the USAID and it was just perfect timing. We met at a trade show in New York City and within six months we started um, prototyping with this new factory. So it was just a resource that we didn't realize that we could tap into. And essentially this organization, we didn't have to pay them, the US government pays them to actually go to different factories and scout out if they would be a good fit for our brand.
2: Nice. And what were you looking for in terms of a good fit? Like what what was not working in Lagos that you needed from a new factory?
1: So we were so we were actually initially manufacturing
2: in China. So designing in Lagos, manufacturing designing in China. China. Got it. Yeah. Okay.
1: So what wasn't working for us in China was. The one, there was a huge language barrier, um, and on top of that, the the agent that we worked with in China would jump from factory to factory because China is really where ninety plus percent of footwear is made um, globally. Factories are constantly busy and you know over capacity. So for a smaller brand, you're constantly wrestling with getting a position in the factory. So that also played into your earlier your earlier question about uh, how frequently are you putting out collections. In China, we would fight to get that, that factory space and time. So we wanted to be able to work with a factory that was growing, that could grow with us. And we were able to find that in Ethiopia because... it's, it's still a growing industry. Footwear manufacturing is still a growing industry in Ethiopia. Um, so those were kind of the two big things. And in, in Ethiopia, they speak English. We don't have the language barrier. Um, and their time zone also is closer. So they're only an hour ahead of Lagos. So our design team Um, doesn't have to wake up, you know, ridiculous hours to communicate with the factory. Um, So there there are a number of advantages that we saw in making this move.
2: And are you going to be based in Ethiopia or do you, will you guys just visit and stay where the design team is? We'll just visit for now. Um,
1: We really have to assess um, financially if it'll make sense to make to make a move there. But for now we, you know, we're still invested in Lagos um, because we're invested in, in the employees that we have there. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the next collection that we have forthcoming, the design competition was done in Lagos. So the designer that we're going to be working with is still there. So it's something that we're thinking about um, and, and, you know, I, I can give you an update maybe in the next year
2: okay, <laughs> on what okay. that might look like. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think if you let's say you guys were based in the US that you would still look to manufacture on the continent of Africa, or was it just kind of serendipitous that you wanted to move there, you have this company and you were able to find a factory in Ethiopia? Do you think you would have stuck with China? Despite all the the problems. Um, I don't think we would have stuck with China. I
1: think anyone, anyone who has a serious investment in footwear is looking for manufacturing outside of China at this point. It's uh, China is actually becoming so. This is outside of us. Let me let me step back and say this: we have our commitment to manufacturing on the continent is because we have you know, a home on the continent, JG's from the continent, and we believe in you know, kind of investing where home is. So that was always something that we wanted to be committed to. Um, but aside from that, when you just look at the footwear industry in general, right now, China's becoming more expensive. Cost of living is going up. Um, people in the industry are trying to look for other places to manufacture, Um, Southeast Asia is becoming more popular in terms of manufacturing and now East Africa. But what I'm noticing about East Africa and where they're they're starting to get it right is they're making sure that any company coming in is going to produce in an ethical way. I can't say that for all factories. I know I can say that about our factory. Um, because our factory has been vetted. Um, there's a, a designation called proudly made in Africa and they are very much focused on ethical standards in within factories. And they have given our factory that stamp of approval. Also the, um, there's an, an industry, um, organization called the FDRA, uh, foot, footwear distributors and retailers of America. And our factory exceeds their standards in terms of quality, in terms of human rights by 30%. So this was something that meant a lot to us. Um, We wanted to make sure that we were partnering with a factory that cared for their workers, that cared for the environment, um, because we're thinking about future generations. That's what's important to us um, as a company, So this move is something that we're seeing. It's a shift within the industry as a whole. Now, is China going to continue to have the lion's share of the manufacturing business? Probably for a long time. You know, it's going to take time for that shift to happen. Um, But you have companies like Under Armour, Nike, Children's Place that have all been moving their manufacturing to East Africa. So we we were
2: one of the early companies to do it. That's really, really good to know. And, and just very interesting and very encouraging. And I ask that because, you know, you, you I consistently hear people talk about China, China, China. It's um, all the hassles that come with it, the language barriers, the holiday schedule when everything shuts down. So to see this move, you know, is just really encouraging and even looking at your website it just looks like such a good fit just seeing brown women you know working on these awesome shoes and you know having these african prints it's just all around dope dope dope
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor-guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United UnitedHealthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
2: Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Now let's talk a little bit about the investing piece and the money piece. Um, so one, you mentioned investors a couple of times. When did you start Thinking of taking on investors, how did you know who to approach and what has that process been like?
1: So, we considered taking on outside investment very early on. And as I mentioned before, our parents were our first investors. Um, you know, we were technically the first investors with our own capital. Uh, but for us, this process has been a, a slow and steady process. Um, raising capital can be a full-time job in itself, and our strategy has been to really look at our own personal networks and getting an understanding for the investor space within our industry. So, within fashion, uh, within uh, social impact investing, which is the space that a number of investors uh, who are interested in our kind of business model kind of play in, and. We treat it as its own, like we come up with our own schedule of, you know, how are we going to outreach, following up, having meetings, because you're going to, you're going to end up getting a lot more no's than you will yeses. And a lot of the fundraising for us has been timing. Um, we went through a period of time in our business where we had really, really great trajectory in terms of sales and everything was just like up, 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 up. Um, and we had a personal tragedy in the family. JG's sister passed away. And so, um, we ended up taking a, a little time off, um, uh, you know, obviously to, you know, kind of care for ourselves during that time, um, and to, to care for her when she was ill. Um, and, When, as soon as your sales, your sales start going down a bit, it's your story becomes less attractive to the investment, you know, the investment community. So a lot of it has to be, you have to be out fundraising when your trend is just up. Um, and that's been a hard lesson for us um, in in making sure that we have the best timing in terms of when we're going out and when we're pitching.
2: Are you fundraising in the U.S. and in Nigeria and, and across the continent of Africa? Or, you know, when you say fundraising and, and meetings and that visibility, how are you getting it?
1: It's primarily in the U.S. We've okay. been fundraising in the U.S. So we've been spending a lot of time uh, in New York, um, focused on fundraising. And a lot of it is, again, just within our own personal networks and plugging into, you know, pitching at different, you know, pitch summits. Um, Our most recent investment came from Pipeline Angels, which is a a woman-only angel network, and they focused on supporting female founders. Um, And so it's doing that, research and finding where the best fit would be.
2: So now I want to transition to talking a little bit about the profitability piece. I want to know, is JG full-time now? Is the business able to pay you guys or is he still side, are you both still kind of side hustling and working on Tondo's at the same time? So at this time I'm, full-time. I'm
1: completely full-time. I'm not side hustling anymore. Um, but JG, JG is currently side hustling because we've been in fundraising mode. Um, and so getting this move to Ethiopia has been quite expensive. (laughs) And, um, although again, we have healthy margins, the expenses in terms of R and D and moving your manufacturing from one continent to another, Is quite expensive. We could do a whole podcast just on that. (laughs) But but yeah, he's, he's strategically side hustling right now. Um, He's, uh, he's currently managing an artist who
2: we have a luxury collection that we're launching with. So, okay. Oh, before we get into that, don't, don't tease it yet because I I do want to break down this this whole, the margins and the profit piece a little bit more? Because you mentioned that although you had a profitable company, you, you talked about profitability early on. Can you explain a little bit more about why you may be profitable, you may have great margins, but with everything that has to go back into the business, you kind of are are not where you need to be for both of you to be full-time?
1: Yeah, I think what a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand is they don't fully understand that your bi- every day your business takes money to run. Um, and so even though you, you might have healthy margins and you're able to sell out collections, um, those expenses don't go away. <laughs> uh, and so although we may have a profit, that profit goes right back into R&D. It's going right back into, um, you know, figuring out how to launch a bigger and better collection. Um, and then also a big part of our growth is is being able to bring on new employees, which is a huge goal of ours this year. Um, and so we have to make sure that we're setting money aside for that because the two of us can't be running this business forever. right? The goal is to really um, have a, a robust team and that will allow us to be CEOs and visionaries and have people who really have a core competency in finance, in marketing, and operations to do uh, those very specific jobs and do them well.
2: What do, what do you think is the hardest lesson that you've learned so far in this entire process?
1: That's such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> the hardest lesson that we've learned in this business is you really have to in a business specifically in a in a fashion related business, your forecasting has to be so tight um, you know in our industry, about eighty percent of your sales are done during the holiday season and so if you can't figure out a way to ensure that you have inventory during that, you know, November to January, February season, it could really impact, um, your sales for the entire year. So we, we experienced that. I mentioned it, you know, our first in our first collection, but we've experienced that more than once. And, you know, that's that conundrum of, you know, raising money Um, But at the same time, you do have customers who are willing to pay, who want your product. But if if you can't raise your money in time for that very critical season in your business, it will hurt you. So we've gone through that. We've gone through that a couple
2: of (laughs) times. Lesson learned. Let's talk a little bit now about the expansions. Are you guys expanding into other products? What's next for Tondos?
1: So we are really excited to be launching a gender neutral shoe um, later this year. We're really excited about that. So we're going to be launching a loafer um, that both men and women can wear, and it'll be an entirely different silhouette than the ballerina flat. Um, And there are a couple of other products that we have in the pipeline um, that I can't share yet, but (laughs) (laughs) we are looking at other product categories um, within fashion and accessories. So we're really, really excited um, about taking our prints and placing them on other items. So that's the part that excites us because we're able to allow our artists to have other streams of income, not just from our classic ballerina flat, but that same print that our winning artist uh, Chioma designed can end up on so many different other products. So she's going to be getting, you know, multiple streams of, of income based on, the products that we launch definitely keep you posted on those because our customers they love the print so they want to see it on so many different products but we have a very strategic kind of rollout roadmap on how we are going to launch those products so okay you know just stay tuned to tondos.com and you'll see how we we end up rolling those out we're excited can't
2: wait all right so now let's jump into the lightning round you know the deal you just answer the very first thing that comes to mind you ready Okay. All right. Number one, what is a resource that has helped you in building Tondos that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience?
1: There's a website called Trademark Engine. So it allows you to register trademarks, copyrights. They're really quick and affordable. And it's important for our business because we have intellectual property of our artists
2: to protect. So number two, what's been the best business book that you've read this year? Ooh, definitely Get Backed by, I
1: think, Evan Baer and Evan Loomis. Re- it really helped us transform our pitch deck and retell our story as a brand. And we've seen so much, like much more traction in terms of
2: uh, investor, investor traction because mm. of it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that one. Um, number three, what is a non-negotiable part of your day? Prayer.
1: Prayer and Bible meditation
2: for sure every morning. Can't can't start my day without it. Yes. All right. Number four. What is a personal habit that you think has helped you significantly in your business? I
1: would say staying connected to my networks. Um, I strongly believe that an isolated entrepreneur cannot be successful. You have to stay connected. Um, that's what's going to help you kind of get through some of your hurdles and problems. There's always someone in your network that can help you. I believe that.
2: Uh, I believe that. Thank you for the reminder. And then number five, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, have a vision, but are worried about losing a steady paycheck?
1: Hmm. People might not like this, but if you're really worried about losing the paycheck, maybe
2: entrepreneurship isn't for you. Ooh, snap. <laughs> I don't usually hear that one. Well, what else though? What if, I mean, you know, we are trained to think this thing is not attainable. Like we talked about in the beginning, it has to be normalized. That's part of what this podcast does. Yeah. So, you know, any, any parting words for that person who just needs it to be normalized a bit more?
1: You know what? When, when you decide to, to go on this journey, you really, it's very unpredictable and you're not going to know at what point the business is going to be profitable. Um, so you have to be flexible. So I'll say this, um, if you are worried about the paycheck or if you are worried about how am I going to make it, have enough flexibility to think through. If you do have to start a little side hustle, um, or if you do have to borrow money from friends and family in the beginning think through that strategy to get you at least through the first year because you know once that paycheck stops the expenses for the business don't go away right um, businesses need capital to sustain themselves um, so don't give up but you have to be creative and you have to think through if you're not going to have a product to sell right away, how can you maintain yourself and maintain the business?
2: I like that a lot. And that's so real. It's like you can save, but if you don't have your kind of survivor hat on, um, the first thing you know, kind of wave that hits you, you might get knocked over. But if you're like, okay, you know, I told myself if this failed, I'm going to do this thing again. I'm going to sell those earrings that I used to sell and I'm going to hit up that person for this. And, you know, just kind of have that hat on about the worst case. What could I do for money?
1: Yeah. And, And the other thing, too, is I think that a lot of entrepreneurs have to figure out how to how to scale down their lifestyle.
2: Speak on it. I'm still learning that. You I'm still. <laughs> have
1: to learn how to scale down. Yes. You know, you're not going no to be to able to get your mm-hmm. nails done every two weeks yeah. or your hair done every week or drive that really nice car, you know, or take a vacation, you know, every six months. That might mm. not happen.
2: Did Mario get to you? Did he send you something? <laughs> <laughs> He said, "You talking points? <laughs> it's, it's real. It's, yes. it's what
1: JG and I have had to experience. You know, mm-hmm. we've literally had to move in with the parents. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like yep. it's been, it's we've had those very real moments where, hey, that twenty five thousand dollars we might be spending on rent in a year that can go into the business. So maybe let's go home. Yep. You know, those are hard conversations to have."
2: Um, Absolutely. With your
1: own people in your thirties and you know, but the sacrifice you have to be willing to sacrifice because this is a, a company is a living, breathing thing and it needs resources. Um and you have to be willing to put in as much as you can into it to see it succeed.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for that transparency. I mean, it that is it's it's rough. It's rough when you're growing in your marriage and in your business, and you're making these sacrifices that don't always um, bode well for like romance, right? Like yeah. <laughs> living with the parents. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but yeah, it will be worth it. You, you gotta know it will be worth it in the end. So that's the note we will end on. And <laughs> with that, where can people connect with you and Tondos after this episode? So they
1: can connect with me on Instagram at Taffy Iodele. And they can connect with the business at Tondo's on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. And uh, we love to hear feedback on our product and what we're doing. And thank you
2: so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much for being in the guest chair. I'm so glad we could do it. And get that next collection up and running because we're all flocking to the website. (laughs) Yay! All right, guys. Keep posted, yep. And there you have it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you want to hear more from me, head on over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash side corner to get my weekly side hustle diaries chronicles about my own journey from passion project to profitable business. And if you want to find me online, I'm at Side Hustle Pro on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to join the Side Hustle Pro Facebook community. Go to sidehustlepro.co forward slash mastermind. And as always, if you love the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks guys. Talk to you next week.